vulnerability has to start on the top. So if you have a leader who's not feeling well, who's not vulnerable, who's not having honest conversation externally, this leader will be inside the company not feeling well and uh, leading in the wrong way. Hello, and welcome to Every Moment is a Choice. I'm your host, Erica Behel, and I invite you to join me on a transformative journey to uncover the extraordinary potential that lies within every single moment of our lives. From the choices we make in our relationships, careers, and personal growth, to the mindset we embrace in the face of adversity, this podcast will empower you to embrace the notion that every moment holds a choice, and it's up to us to seize it. Join me as we engage in insightful conversations with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have harnessed the power of choice to achieve greatness, overcome obstacles, and create extraordinary lives. If you feel inspired by this episode, please read it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you. Today, I'm honored to have Nick Johnson on the podcast. Hi, Nick. Hey, how's it going, Erika? <laughs> it's going well. It's going well. So, Nick, uh, you know, looking at you today, you're a wildly successful person, at least from the outside, right? You're managing director of EGN, Executives Global Network in Southeast Asia which is the region's largest peer-to-peer network for executives. You're an accomplished Ironman triathlete. Uh, you have a stunning wife, shout out to Donna. And you're an in-demand keynote speaker and published author. But you're also in recovery. And just a few years ago, your life was in such a fragile state that you thought that this may be the end. And you actually wrote a will and basically thought, you know, things could be over. And you now tell your story to many people about coming back from the brink. You're also a vocal advocate for substance recovery, for loneliness and depression awareness and treatment. And you're having an impact, a positive impact on thousands and thousands of people through your work. So I'm so honored to have you here today, Nick. Thank you. Well, thank you, Erika, for that warm introduction. And uh, it's great to be here with you to talk about this and Perhaps if you had this conversation with me six years ago, you would not have heard anything that I'm about to say today. Thank you for sharing. So let's go back because six years ago is, a, is an important time in your life. So there's one date that you've written about in your book, which we'll get to later, and that is May 5th, 2018. Can you tell us about the significance of that date for you and what led up to it? Yes. So what happened leading up to that really was that the uh, I was let go from a few jobs, uh, mergers, acquisitions, changes, and so on. And, and I tried to deal with all the insecurities and all the anxiety that comes from being let go from a job, especially a job which perhaps, you know, you define yourself in your workplace and with your job. And also as us expats, uh, the work permit, the housing, the allowances, even perhaps our status in the country is relying on your job. So once you lose that, you lose everything. And I was not ready for that and I didn't know how to explain it to anyone. So my way to deal with it was keeping it secret, trying to cover it for everyone, including my family and everyone, and just pushing everyone away from me because I was scared to someone would find out that I've been terminated from my jobs. So that's where it started. And when you do that for years, you start to live you know, a life that was full of fear, full of anxiety. And even eventually my third job I got into, I did very well. But I was terrified that when would be the moment that I'm let go again. So that was, Erika, what was leading up to this. And 
the, my way of coping then was isolating myself, uh, consuming alcohol, fast food, stop exercising and doing all the things that I normally wouldn't do because I had a life before as well when I was into marathon and Ironman events and I was managing my life, but it all fell apart over three years from 2015 to 18. So that's perhaps where we can start and then I can share with you what happened then in 2018 as well, Erika. Yeah, so so what did happen in, in 2018? Yeah, so I had until then kept everything secret and silent and one day, though, I couldn't cope with it. And as you said, also, I had started to write my will, my testament. And I thought, you know, is this the end? Is this how it should be? But then one day I decided to speak up. I told uh, Donna, who is today my wife, uh, how I felt. She immediately dragged me to a doctor. She told my story to the doctor. And after that, she dragged me to a friend of mine who had gone through something similar before. That friend linked me to a recovery group. And the next day I, I wa- was in a meeting, basically, listening to others who've gone from, uh, through similar accidents, should I say, or layoffs in the past, and gone through also drinking issues and so on. So I felt completely normal. So within 24 hours, I was completely exposed. I felt this was nothing that I have to keep secret about, and I was starting to share my story. And that was basically a V-shaped recovery from feeling you know, that life is over to being fully alive again. So it sounds like it was almost an intervention. You know, like you told, she knew what was going on. And she said, listen, we have to involve professionals here. We have to do something. So it was somebody, it was not you going to a doctor, but it was somebody saying, I care about you enough that we need to stop this right now. Yes, absolutely. And when I went to the doctor also, I, and because she shared what was going on and uh, I was consuming too much alcohol, but perhaps many people do that. And uh, so for her, it was uh, not a big thing. She thought all Westerners are drinking, but I was also hiding the drinking. I tried not to show it. So I was probably consuming more than what she felt. And therefore, you know, it, it was needed to have this conversation with the doctor. And I had to uh, let go of, I had to let go of alcohol. I had to start eating healthy again. I had to get back into exercise. All these things that I used to be able to do. And, and I did. And that's, uh, that's where I keep going now. It's five and a half years later. And I, haven't had a drink since, so it had a big impact on me that moment. Absolutely. So May 5th is the last time you drank? Yes, yes. May 5th, 2018, yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations on that as well. After you you got the help to quit the alcohol uh, from Dona, from the doctors, but was that the end of the struggle? Because I thought you had some tough moments after that as well with uh, a friend or colleague Yes. So what happened then was um, while I was sharing my story with Donna, who became my wife at this time, and also with a doctor and indeed in the close circle of a recovery group, I felt because this was confidential and anonymous, I felt fine to share it. But I wasn't really ready to share my story with the rest of the world. But I was already doing great. I mean, I had lost the, the 30 kilos I lost uh, in one year. I was back competing in a full Ironman 2019 again, running marathons and so on, and feeling the best shape ever. But I was not ready to tell the world. But then one incident changed everything. I had a friend of mine, indeed, who I was working with, who was about to give a talk to EGN members, and uh, he didn't show up for the rehearsal. And we were wondering what had happened to him. And uh, after the rehearsal, then I checked my phone and I received a message that he had died of suicide. And that left me shocked and many other people shocked. I called his brother, who also was uh, completely surprised. We were wondering what was going on here. He was someone who was living perhaps 
having the best uh, year of his life. He's just been to Mount Everest, the base camp there, which was one of his dreams. And he shared on social media, he created, uh, created a Facebook group, which I followed. He shared a video every day and so on. And he was so full of life that we just couldn't understand what was going on. And he was gone. And that was the game changer for me, because I then asked his brother if I could set up a fund and uh, do a charity activity to raise awareness of this and funds for suicide prevention. And his brother said, uh, sure, go ahead with it. That's what Simon would have wanted. Shout it out loud. And that was his call to me and get into action. So I made a video then um, in conjunction with setting up this fund and it went viral on LinkedIn. So within 24 hours, hundreds of people were writing all over the world, wanting to support it and so on. And then the radio stations contacted me, TV contacted me and there I was without being ready, but they asked me all the questions and I shared my full story for the first time then <laughs> because I, they asked me questions what about my story. And then there was no way turning back. I had to be an open book. Uh, so it was the second incident that really changed my life. Wow. So you took the initiative based on wanting to share the story of your colleague and friend and what he had gone through. And inadvertently, it became your story as well, right? And yes. and, and everyone wanted to hear about you as well. Wow. I mean, obviously, you're, you're comfortable sharing it now because you do keynotes, you talk to audiences, you really reach out to people. But in the beginning, I mean, was it another point at which you felt vulnerable? Because initially it was, you know, Donna and the doctors, and now it's almost the world knowing about this. How did, how did that second kind of sharing or vulnerability feel? Yeah, so it was okay to perhaps answer a few questions on radio, TV. That wasn't too hard. But then when I was invited to give keynotes about it, and especially the Singapore Women Association in 2019 wanted to have me to spend a full evening with them to share my story. And I was very nervous for that. But I had at that stage learned that already that if I have these feelings of anxiety and so on, I have to immediately reach out for help. So what I did, I got myself a coach, uh, Andrew Bryant, immediately, who is a very good public speaker. And he helped me to prepare for the talk. He was my coach. I did rehearsing. I gave my talk in his house in front of him. He questioned me. He challenged me. He supported me and gave me the confidence. While he wasn't allowed to be at that particular keynote, because it was only me who was a man in the audience, it was a woman audience, <laughs> <laughs> he came to other talks later on. And I worked with him for about one year. And then I moved on to have other coaches. So that's the life that I live now that I constantly... I acknowledge the pain, the anxiety. If these feelings come, then I write it down and immediately ask myself, who can I ask for help here? Who knows how to handle this situation? Yeah. It sounds like you've done a complete 180 in that initially you were afraid to ask for help. It was uncomfortable sharing your vulnerability with people. But now it almost seems like whatever your challenge is, you're ready to ask for help because you know that there's someone out there that can help you with it. Yes, absolutely. And I love the saying, which I included in my book as well, you're only as sick as your secrets. And if your secrets then are that in my case that, you know, I didn't want to talk about the feelings I had and the alcohol addiction I, I had and so on. But once that was exposed, and if that was the worst parts of my life that I then discovered, then everything else is easy. So to then come to Andrew Bryant and admit, Andrew, I had this talk in two months. I'm a bit worried about, uh, you know, the presentation. That's not the big ask. It's a much bigger challenge to come into a room uh, and say that you have an alcohol problem. So we need to just be 
comfortable with uncomfortable. And that means, you know, getting rid of some of those biggest fears and, and get them out there and discuss them and solve them. Definitely. I love that approach. It's such a good advice because we suffer in silence. Or, or I think that actually, I remember the phrase from your book, the smiling depression, where you, you can't see it on the outside. Yes, absolutely. Smiling depression, I think, is so common among executives because we have to put on this life. We have to have a beautiful social media, LinkedIn page, be on speaker panels and so on. And we have to show up, of course, being the best, looking the greatest, even that something challenging is going on on the inside. What I'm trying to do today instead is is also being vulnerable. If you have flown for a talk somewhere and you're showing up and you're not in your best shape, be, be at least authentic and share with someone what's going on. Don't just suppress it. You're okay to feel a bit jet-lagged if you fly somewhere. And you can perhaps joke about it with the audience and get it out there. Immediately show that you're a human and then you can only improve from there on. Yeah, definitely. So you've, re- you've actually written the book that we referenced. You know, you started to share your story, you were doing keynotes, but then you took the extra step of actually writing the whole book and you interviewed other executives and their struggles. And it's, your book is called Executive Loneliness. So what, what made you move to, you know, wanting to write the book? What did you feel that you wanted to accomplish there? Well, because I had so much media exposure, so many great questions asked by journalists. And when people read these articles, everyone kept saying, Nick, Nick, you should write a book about this. And I'm sure we all have heard that from time to time. But this one, when I heard it from so many people, and especially when the journalists said that, you know, these are the kind of articles we've been wanting to write for years, but we have not found anyone who wants to be covered in them. Everyone was okay to be interviewed for articles about addiction, loneliness, and so on, but they would not want to be stepping forward, so they had to be anonymous. But what kind of article is that? The media is looking for something where people can actually step forward and show that it's real people. Uh, So at least in Singapore here, I was the first one, and, and this was just at the turn when suicide had been decriminalized in Singapore. It was a crime until the end of 2019, so here was just a switch. So just at the time when I started to have these conversations, we could have them legally also in Singapore. Yeah. So a lot of people have benefited your book because it's been in print, it's been selling very well. And a lot of people kind of pick it up and say, wow, I, I recognize parts of that. Executives, uh, managers, leaders, anytime, anyone who's dealing with that. You, you've mentioned you know, the help that you've gotten from anonymous support programs in your own alcohol recovery. You've volunteered with some organizations. And in your book, you actually outline your own five steps for people who are facing similar situations. Can you basically, at a high level, kind of go through the five steps? Absolutely. And indeed, I learned so much by this, uh, this recovery program. And I'm sure most of the listeners uh, are aware that it's 12 steps. And there's 12-step programs these days for everything from uh, overeating, shopping, sex, gambling, drugs, alcohol. So if someone has an issue with any kind of addiction, there is indeed 12-step program for them. And most of them are you know, run by volunteers. These days, I'm giving back myself, helping. Today, I met with other people who are new into this and guiding them through it. And by the way, the 12th step is always that you have to give it back. So once you've done the 12 steps, you stay on the 12 steps and helping others to go through it. So that's how it continues. And why did I then write a book with five steps? Well, of all the keynotes I gave in 2019, there was one question at the end of it from everyone. 
they say, well, Nick, it's great that you have these 12 steps, but what about if I'm an al- not an alcoholic? What about if I don't have an addiction that is strong enough for me to go and seek these 12-step programs? And I kept writing down that question, you know, and I was, I was thinking, okay, where should these people go? Because I wish that they could come. But if you're not an alcoholic, why would you go to a 12-step program for alcohol? Well, I sort of was trying to bring in people because I thought, well, you have some issues there. You feel isolated. What is the isolation anonymous? You don't really have any program for that. So that's why I thought I come up with a summary. So the five steps is actually a summary. So if you don't have an alcohol addiction, you don't have any of those firm addictions, but you want to feel more of a connection to yourself, you want to get a bit healthier and so on. That's the five steps. So the first step then, what we asked in recovery is to take stock. What do we mean with this is really doing an audit of yourself. Because if you imagine that you are a shopkeeper, you have a a shop, I'm sure you would do an audit once a quarter, once a year, or maybe every day you will count your inventory and do an audit so you know what you have. But how often do we actually stop and pause as human beings and take an honest, deep look at ourselves? That is what we need to do when we come into a recovery program. And it's about really taking that down on a pen and paper or a spreadsheet And we do that there with a sponsor and you can do it with a friend or a mentor or someone who you trust. You can sit down there and do this audit. So in my case, I had to write down that I had an alcohol problem. I had gained weight. I had lost all my healthy habits. I had relationships that were broken. I did not have a good relationship with my sister at the time. I had some credit card debts that was lying there that I was uh, trying to ignore. There was issues and I had to get it all down. So that's the first step. What's the second step? The second step is then once you have that the issues in one line, you, you look at who can you ask for help for every single line. Mm-hmm. And it's about writing down who can you take this to. Is it a coach, a mentor, a sponsor? Is it a friend, a colleague, your boss? Is it perhaps a therapist, a psychologist? Is there an anonymous program where you can take this to? That's the second step. And then... The third step, and I put this one as the third step because I realized that it's so important to get healthy. So it's getting healthy at the third step. And so on that list, then prioritize the things that is related to your physical health, mental health, and emotional health, and go and ask for help for those first. And that's what I did. So I got someone who was a life coach, fitness coach, who could help me uh, get some wearable devices, give me a basic training plan where I just started to walk, uh, nutritionist to help me with proper diet again, getting those small wins. So getting really healthy is the, is the third step, and I recommend that to everyone. And just staying on the, the getting healthy step for a second, you know, I think you you alluded to the fact that kind of physical health and mental health are intertwined or they kind of, there's a synergistic relationship did you find that as well, that did going for a run make you feel mentally uh, more stable as well along your recovery? Yes, absolutely. So what happened then when I went to see the doctors in, in May in 2018, I was given medication for anxiety and so on. And I took that medication, but I wanted to get rid of the medication. And with my fitness coach then, we developed also together with the doctors a plan for me to taper off the medicine over three months. So the, the exercise was stepping up. I was walking longer, start jogging, start swimming and so on. And the medication went down. So it replaced actually the medication. So after three months, uh, I was free from all these drugs, all antidepressants and uh, all the kind of medicine that they gave me. 
And since then, I'm relying on a healthy diet and exercise. And it really, really does a better job uh, because I don't have the downsides of the medication. Uh, you know, you got rashes and all kinds of things what's happening and, and, uh, and when I took the medication. But when you eat well and you exercise, then you also sleep well. And it all goes in this circle. And, and uh, I, I certainly don't need any medication for many years now. It's so important. I think the easy way out is to take medicine, but maybe the better way is to do it through your lifestyle and, and exercise. And didn't you refer to exercise as the happy pill or something? Yes. What was your... Yes. The, I call it the natural happy pill indeed. And, and I'm so glad again, because I already then had the habit of asking for help. So I asked the doctor, how can I taper off this? And then I asked my fitness coach and I took a little bit of advice of both of them and set up this goal of three months plan to be uh, drug free. And it really worked. It really worked because you hear people otherwise becoming addicted to the medication and so on. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted to be addicted to eating well, sleeping well and to exercise. Yeah. So what's the fourth step? The fourth step is nurturing healthy relationships. And this can be a painful one. Because in the first step, we've done that audit, we have to write down all the people who we have harmed, all the people who we might have said something bad to, or also the people who have harmed you. So if you're walking around thinking about some relationships with pain, we have to write this down. And I did this with my sponsor, and I was asked to even go through all the way back from my childhood. I had to dig out all the photo albums, all the pictures I could from my childhood, go through them one by one, and look at the people on the photos and thinking about them. Had I said something 30, 40 years ago to them that might not have been right? Had they done some harm to me? And then I went through the high school photos. I remember that. And I then went through all the jobs I worked in. And I was thinking through all the colleagues I had and made this list. And it was about 60, 70 names in the end. Uh, I heard others who had names of up to 400 people here, of people they had harmed. It can be something very small. Uh, it can be something like you said something to your neighbor 15 years ago, or maybe there was a small conflict and you said something, but then you're walking around. When you see them, you're thinking about that incident, so you're carrying that around. So what we had to do then in this fourth step was to clean this list up. You're just starting with the five, six most important, which is perhaps your parents and your, uh, your closest relatives. And then with a the sponsor, you, you prepare an action to go back and make amends and apologize for the actions you did, unless you harm them. And if there's someone who is not alive anymore and you write an apology letter to them, you pray on it and then perhaps you burn that letter or you throw it away, but at least you do some ceremony for every single one, you clean up that past. And that is a thorough process that can take a few months to do. And I still today, now five years into recovery, sometimes someone pop up, maybe I remember, oh, eight years ago, I said something to that colleague, you know, then I dig that out and I actually made one amend uh, last week to someone, uh, which was eight years ago. And uh, most of the time they'd be very, very surprised and very positive. This was a particular job I resigned from uh, about eight years ago. And when I was thinking through it now, it came up in my head. I realized that I didn't leave on the best note. I was not performing my best. I blamed the company for the performance, I blamed everything but myself. And I now went back and I said, sorry, I didn't show up at my very best. And his response was, oh, I always look for the best in everyone. I thought there was some difficulties going through in your life. 
thank you for your note. Uh, let's catch up for a coffee next time you're in town. So now I have a positive feeling when I think about that job, that relationship. And that is what we do here in the fourth step, really going back to that. And I can just share also that I went back and made amends to my sister over an incident a few years earlier when I stormed off the lunch table because she ordered a Coca-Cola to my son, who was a few years old at the time, and I didn't think he should have it. But at that time, I didn't know how to slow down and take it in a good way. So I stormed off, I grabbed him from the table, and then I didn't speak to her for a year or two years after that. And I had to go back and make amends for this incident. And of course, she laughed it off and you know, gave me a hug and everything was good. And that means that that incident sort of disappeared from my life as a pain. And I can see my sister again. We have a good relationship again. So that is what I encourage everyone here on this step to clean up your past and make sure that you have no baggage with you. It reminds me that when a person is sick or they're going through something like addiction, it not only impacts themselves, but it impacts everyone around them. And the fact that, you know, you have to think, what what was I saying to other people that probably wasn't right? And, you know, you're going through the whole process of going and making the amends and, and making things right, not only for you, but for them as well. And I think that's such a beautiful, a beautiful step and a necessary step to kind of acknowledge you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, things were misunderstood. Maybe I was just an, a jerk because of certain things going on in my life. It's a very, very meaningful step, I think. So what's, what's the last step? Yes, yeah, so the last step is once you then cleared your baggage, so you're feeling better about yourself and you're on the right path, then it's really going deep inside yourself and uh, locating your purpose. And what I mean with this and especially because the book I wrote also and the interviews I did was with mainly with entrepreneurs and senior executives. And for many of us, it's uh, taking a step back and uh, deflating the ego. It's uh, looking at, you know, am I part of something bigger? Or am I God? Is it me who's running the show at all times? And uh, many times here, what I found in the recovery program is that the more senior position, the higher the payroll, the more perks they would have and the bigger the ego would be and the bigger the crash and the bigger they therefore need to dig in order to find their purpose. And uh, many times here the term God comes up and that makes people run away and get scared. And I want to say that we never talk about any religions in any recovery programs. It's only about spirituality and perhaps just admitting that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And, And that is the healthy step where We can then start from there and be of service to other people, be grateful for what we have. And then the circle keeps going back and we're helping other people. Nice. There's a a quote by Mark Twain that I love. And it says, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. So do you, do you feel like you found out your why? Yes, I feel so. I mean, uh, having gone through the pains I have and, and the journey I went through, to now help others is really what gives me the greatest joy and even give me goosebumps. In fact, I went for a swim session with my academy this morning and there was one gentleman who's just come into recovery who was there today. We shared a few words and I'm going to meet him up on Sunday over coffee. Uh, he's only four days into his recovery journey and he has a lot to learn from me and I can share that what I've gone through the last five and a half years. Uh, And that really gives me so much hope. And I just want and wish for everyone who's going through difficult times that don't go through it alone, but just reach out and ask for help. Yeah, so important. Thanks for sharing the five steps. I think they're very clear. 
and very actionable as well. And they're, like I said, they're outlined in your book with lots of examples and tips and kind of anecdotal stories. So if someone wants to learn more about it, the book has all the information there and and resources, I think, as well uh, for people. And one thing I wanted to share as well is because you and I, you know, we know each other. And uh, one thing I I was really curious about is because you had talked about the V-shaped recovery. Like you hear the classic story of like people hit rock bottom and then they climb out of it or, you know, they, and it doesn't have to do only with addiction recovery. It's, you know, people find themselves obese and then they make a commitment. I'm going to lose 40 kg or something. And they achieve this monumental thing. And then they find it hard to maintain. And you've been sober now for five years or over five years. And I remember, you know, a few months ago, we were at an event and it was like a networking event. It was open bar and we were all drinking, including me. And, you know, you were drinking a glass of water and socializing and hanging out and talking. But I, I sensed in that, in that situation that you were really, you were making a choice. Even today, you're still making a choice to drink water when there's an open bar. And what's the difference in like the motivation between getting sober or, you know, making a huge change when you're hitting rock bottom versus five years later, you make that little decision every day, or is it a big decision? Like what's, what's the difference in the motivation? Yeah. So having had issues with uh, addiction in the past and alcohol addiction, for me, it means one drink uh, would not be enough and a thousand would be not enough either. You know, it it would never stop. Uh, So the circle will start again. So I cannot have one drink. And uh, that's uh, why I had to surrender to the addiction in itself in the recovery program and just live a life without it. Uh, Sometimes it's easier to not have anything rather than trying to control it. I tried to control it many, many times and it just didn't work. It would be the same with many addictions. You see smokers who quit and then they start again, but it doesn't work to have one cigarette every three days or something like that. So I think addictions are like that. And once I then got a taste for life without the addiction running the life, then I wanted more of that. And we say in recovery, you get, you get a life beyond your wildest dreams. And that is really, really what we're talking about in recovery. Why beyond your wildest dreams? Because perhaps all of us can picture a big house. We can picture a Ferrari. We can all these kind of things that we dream about and we think about and we can put down. But the life we get by giving up these kind of addictions and when we're patching it together by gratitude and purpose and so on is something that we cannot imagine. The life I have now is not something that I could picture it's really beyond my wildest dreams. My back office is in Phuket. Before I might have had it on my bucket list, the wish list, but it happened. And I'd not only rent my apartment anymore, which I always done, I own it. I live here and I train. I put my training first. I'm fully connected with the people I love and we are supporting each other. Everyone knows that they can talk to me about everything. Therefore, people feel safe coming, having conversations with me. And it used to be complete opposite. So it's only by me sharing my biggest secrets and the dark side of me that this life became possible. And therefore, when other people are drinking, it doesn't bother me. I hardly reflect on it. And and also, even if I go to bars or parties, it's, it's rare I'm out that late as when I saw you, but it was a networking function, which I really enjoyed as well. And I'm not a networker. I'm an introvert. So normally I would need to medicate myself to feel comfortable. 
Uh, but that was an illusion. That's what I fooled myself because I was putting on a show and to put on that show, I had to drink. But now I can go there and be myself. And that's a big difference. That's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's you. It's being you. And that's something I think we all strive for. And something you just said reminded me of gratitude as well. Because something, I mean, I, I haven't struggled with addiction per se, but I've had anxiety. I've had burnout uh, that led to a lot of changes in my life as well. And I read something one time that really inspired me. And it said, what you're living today is the future you once dreamt of. And if you think about, like you said, a couple years ago, you never would have imagined you have a team in Phuket, you have all of this together and, and just be grateful that, you know, even, even if things could always be better in our lives, right? But what we have right now is something we thought never possible five years ago or something. And I think that's something I take away as, you know, I, I take stock of almost every day now. And this is why we need to share these stories and we need to encourage people to, you know, break the silence, no matter what it is they have on their mind or what issues they're going through. The thing is that they are not the first one. They are not the first one to go through this. But somehow in our mind, we believe that, you know, but what, as we say again to my fifth step about finding your purpose, deflating the ego, we need to know and understand that we are not that special. And once we can accept that we are not the unique, the chosen one in this universe, then we open up the doors to also learn from others who's been there before, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You are the managing director of EGN. And so this is work that is closely aligned to also your purpose, I believe. It's not just a job that you're doing because it's also providing a platform, I think, for a lot of executives to, to share vulnerably. You know, uh, Tell us a little bit about EGN as well. Yeah, so EGN is a peer network where we organize confidential peer group meetings where you can discuss your work-related challenges. So our job is to help administrate this. We have certified facilitators who run the meetings uh, where you then go up and stand in front of the group and present your work-related challenges for the group to help you solve them. And that's a way we network and build real authentic relationships, which is then formed by being vulnerable. So um, indeed, it's very linked to my purpose. And I can just see on the EGN chat groups today we have, and I see even now more and more Singaporeans also being so grateful and making positive comments. I see, you know, they're talking about this today and because there was an article uh, in the Straight Times that Singapore government will focus more on the mental health and they understand that it's a big issue and they want to do more effort. And everyone is just, they're just sharing how amazed they are the way EGN has expanded, but also the conversations, the fact that they really are there helping each other and being vulnerable. And while it sits quite deeply in us as foreigners, Westerners perhaps, to share, it even sits deeper in locals, for example, Asians and also Singaporeans. But now, since we are leading the way, I have also constant conversations with Singaporeans and encouraging them and helping them also to seek help and, and reach out when they have issues. There, there's so many cultural nuances when it comes to mental health, right? And you and I being Westerners, we're more comfortable, I think, being vulnerable. But it's certainly something that I think Eastern cultures like Singaporeans can also benefit from. Hopefully it'll become more widespread as well. EGN is one forum. Do you think like corporations are doing enough? Companies are kind of supporting the mental health? Like it just feels like sometimes this is something that somebody has to like go out and seek their own resources, do you think companies should be doing more for their executives? 
Yeah, so sadly, this has gone backwards. Uh, since I joined EGN, if I'm looking back a couple of years ago, most executives uh, in Singapore had a budget uh, w with memberships and so on. They could access that budget and join EGN. And this is still the case in Europe. About 99% of all memberships of EGN is paid by the company in Europe. In Singapore now, this have kept changing and now a vast majority is paid by the individuals who have to take this out of their own pocket, uh, which means that clearly the HR departments and the, the head of companies in Asia is saying that we don't support your mental health, we don't support your emotional well-being, we don't want to grow you, we don't want you to go out and network and feel good about yourself, uh, this is something you have to pay for yourself. That's at least the signal that I'm reading and I, I think is completely wrong. Maybe they are worried. Maybe these leaders are worried that if they go out and join this, that they will find another better opportunity. I don't know where exactly it sits, but it's a very sad development. And then when I see that many of the members, they pay for this themselves out of their own pocket, but then they are not in charge of the calendar. And then they've flown all around Asia and they miss the meetings. That is the biggest issue here, that, that we need to strategize our networking and relationship building. And HR has to play a role in this. But at the moment, it's going the other way, which is a big issue I see, especially in Singapore. That's really interesting. Being based in Singapore, you hear about companies investing in like wellness programs or maybe some like activities, team team building, where they're trying to address some of these issues, but they they do seem to be directed towards like the staff level or employee level, maybe not the executive level. And what you're saying is that it's as important, if not more important, to also invest in the mental health of your executives, not just your frontline teams or kind of the the office. Yes, I believe so. And vulnerability has to start on the top. So if you have a leader who's not feeling well, who's not vulnerable, who's not having honest conversation externally, this leader will be inside the company not feeling well and uh, leading in the wrong way. And uh, that is what we are seeing now. And definitely the trend is going that this is we're going to get more of these leaders until we're able to do what Europe does so well when this is clearly, clearly something that a senior executive has part of their package and it's paid by the company, these kind of memberships, because why would you need an external organization? Well, we all need our safe spaces uh, and it can be mastermind groups, can be peer groups, can be any of these. But the challenge when you're a senior executive is that you don't have the time to put into administrative book it and to get 15, 20 senior executives to come in the venue at the same day, someone need to book it and so on. And that is all that these networks, including, including EGN does. And these are meetings that are so important for the executives. So, so yeah, this is a, a shout out to any HR leaders indeed, you know, that they need to look after this. And I know that the, what the, most of them say, oh, we run this internally, we do this internally, we have mentoring program internally. But what they don't understand is that the senior leaders will not share honestly and openly the challenges they are facing inside their company with their teams. They are at the top. They need to have these conversations externally. And we shouldn't have to wait until they be hospitalized and need to see psychologists and get medication. We can address this proactively by having these safe spaces for them. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many executives who would never share this internally because it could destroy your career, basically, you know, with politics and, and all types of, you know, gossip and stuff going on within companies. So they need to have a safe space as well. Yeah, I totally get that. So if if you were to speak directly to a listener who's you know an executive having problems and 
maybe not not reached out to anyone yet, if you could kind of talk directly to that person who's struggling, what would you say to them? Yeah, so it would depend on of what the struggle is. If it's work-related, yeah, try to join a, a network or, or ask someone, a mentor, for help or get a coach who can help you with it if it's work-related. But if it's really something more, if it is addiction or isolation or some of those feelings, then seek professional help. The beautiful thing these days after the pandemic is that you can see a therapist or psychologist online. You can book a session. No one needs to find out. I understand that before it might be difficult because you worry if I go and see a doctor, it will be in my logs, people will see me, and then there will be gossip. I get that, but you don't have to worry about that. You can call. There's so many available online. And again, if it is an addiction, then it it doesn't cost anything. All these uh, 12-step programs are basically self-supporting, and you can join any one of them. And if you're talking about Singapore... They are basically one in every part of the of, of the town. You know, you can just use wherever you live, and there will be something within one kilometer from where you live. And wh- what's next for you, Nick? What What do you have on the horizon? So I'm writing my second book, and it's basically about the power of vulnerability. So I'm interviewing uh, now executives and business owners about the power of vulnerability. So it's basically built on on my first book, and by all the stories. Uh, that basically also I'm coming back to the people who I interviewed uh, in the first book to see where are they three years later. And I can just mention that one of the ladies I interviewed, who at that time worked for as a managing director for a bank, when I interviewed her, the second time we uncovered that she actually had rehearsed her own suicide twice. And I was the first human being she shared this with. I gave her the time and space. And in the end, we managed to call a therapist who worked with her she shared this story then eventually with her staff internally in the bank, and including her boss, and had very, very warm, positive feedback and response. Uh, she is now on sabbatical leave and really be- rebuilt her life. And she has a life beyond her wildest dreams now. Her relationship that was falling apart with her husband is repaired, and they are feeling great. And she is just so happy. So she had a similar experience as me, all because she was vulnerable. So she will be also covered in my next book and many of the other leaders who share their stories and to see how their life are changing. That's fantastic. Do you have a, is it coming out sometime next year or do you have any timeline? Yeah, I will be writing it in one year more, basically. And then uh, it should be out by end of next year. As we wrap up, Nick, I mean, thank you again for being so vulnerable, right? For sharing so much with us today. And I'm sure that it's going to be useful for anyone out there listening who is thinking, you know, I'm going through this by myself and I I don't know who to talk to. Just hearing your story is very inspirational because it says, you know, whether it's your your wife, your your best friend, just reach out to somebody. You know, some somebody who cares about you will will help you if you can't do it yourself. And so as we wrap up today, I mean, what would you like your legacy to be, Nick? Well, I want to continue down this path, the one I am on now and uh, I believe I'm on the right path. I feel so. I feel fully alive in doing what I'm doing. I get goosebumps of meeting people who are a few days in recovery like the gentleman I met this morning and spending my Sunday afternoon talking to him is the time I I want to do and I want to continue down this path. So I hope that uh, people will continue to remember me that I was there for them when needed and, and, and that gives me happiness. That's very beautiful. 
and and I'm sure you're helping so many people already and will continue to help more. So thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Erika, for covering this and thanks to all the listeners as well. Thank you for listening today. I hope this has been a useful investment of your time. If you feel inspired by this episode, please rate it and consider subscribing. I'm keen to know how it's impacted you.